Hey folks, Darren here. Just wanted to give you a quick message. We had some technical difficulties with tonight's episode and we apologize for that. And we didn't want to throw the whole thing out and redo it. We thought the material was still good. We wanted you to have it and we wanted you to hear it and we wanted you to enjoy it. So bear with us. It'll be better next time. It's a learning process as always and over and out. Hi, I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. I'm Allison. And I'm Darren. And we're four voices you don't usually hear all together on the same podcast. It's through the magic of technology. <laughs> so it's the endless knot joining forces with mistake. mistake. Very good. <laughs> we can speak in unison. With <laughs> you guys are coordinated better than us. <laughs> so yeah, we're all joining up because our podcasts are so clearly overlapping and we've had so many conversations over the last, oh, I don't know, year, maybe, about the material that we all covered sure. that we yeah. thought it was time that we all get together and do something together. Yeah. So we've tackled the Greek myth source side like we usually do mm -hmm. and I understand you guys have tackled the etymology and word side of things <laughs> <laughs> yeah well since our podcast tends to talk about classical and medieval and language uh, aspects of the ancient world the medieval world and English mm -hmm. well what we decided to do as you know is the myth of Theseus and Ariadne and Mark, it was you who actually proposed this. It was, yeah, because I'd done a video that touched on this topic a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So our podcast, we play that audio from that video, which is about the word clue and its connection to the story of Theseus and Ariadne. And so what we suggested to you guys was that you guys could talk about the story in its Greek origins. So I understand you looked at some dithyrams? Yes. Yes. We did. We looked at two dithyrams, Pachylides. About 476 right. BC, kind of old, a precursor to classical Athenian tragedy. And there are little dramatic lyrics that tell a little bit of a story about Theseus's arrival in Athens and the contest with Minos. Yeah, they focus on two specific episodes in the story of Theseus. Yeah. So his arrival in Athens after he does his labors along the way. Mm -hmm. And then an episode on his way to kill the Minotaur. Yeah, so we <laughs> the best part, the killing of the Minotaur is not in the section that we decided to discuss, but <laughs> we just didn't write that, so I can't really talk about that. <laughs> we kind of know how that one turned out anyway, so it's not really spoiler alert required. <laughs> well, that's the thing about being constrained by your actual source texts. I think people are often surprised at how how many of our most famous myths don't survive in a narrative form in their original Greek? Yeah, the sources are pretty limiting. And people like to think that there's like, you know, a book of Greek myths. Yeah, and right. everything you need to know about every Greek myth is told in a book. And, and it's, it's really indexed. just... Yeah, yeah, it's fully. just piecing little bits together here and there. Yeah, and and mm -hmm. mythological time is the is exactly like real world time. That's another big thing in the encounter often. Yeah, didn't Hero A do this to? As if it makes logical sense. Yeah, chronology, right? It's yeah. hard to mm -hmm. escape that. 
if you guys talked about the origins of Theseus, that's good because what we ended up talking about was my, as you'll hear, absolute favorite version of the story, which is in Catullus and his poem 64, where he, again, doesn't actually talk directly about the Theseus and the Minotaur. <laughs> in fact, I think we basically avoided talking about the Minotaur no. <laughs> directly at all. This is an epic episode. <laughs> yeah, we've brilliantly sidestepped. The most famous part of it. I did talk about it a little yeah. bit, but uh, he portrays Ariadne abandoned by Theseus. And so I, we talked about that poem and then I went into the consequence of the myth being translated into English, primarily by Geoffrey Chaucer in the 14th century, and how that kicks off uh, an etymology of a very common word, the word clue, and how that kicks off a whole train of events that leads through criminology to detective fiction, and then in a kind of circuitous path all the way back to Greek myth again. Right on. Well, that's good. That's good stuff. And circuitous paths is important. Yes. <laughs> lots and lots of circuitous paths through labyrinthine twists. Yes. Well, we do mention Procustian. Yeah, and Labyrinthine and Labrys at the end when we're out of our narrative. Right. Well, there you go. <laughs> that's good, actually, because I don't think we talked about the word labyrinth. No, not, not the word labyrinth itself. That's yeah, true. Yeah, so I'm glad okay. you covered yeah. that. Mm -hmm. So we'll have some pictures on our blog as well to supplement that. Uh, right, yeah. of the Minoan stuff. Yeah, this is some Minoan stuff. Good. Cool. All right. Well, I think then, so anyone who's listening to either of our podcasts definitely needs to check out the other podcast <laughs> for, for sure. all of the material that complements what each of us is talking about. That was our plan, and I think it's turned out pretty well. Well, to get a whole picture, right? Let's yeah. put the pieces together. That's right. That would be the best way of doing it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So we had fun doing this with you guys, and we hope you guys had fun with this project too. Mm -hmm. indeed, and it's, indeed. And it's been fun to actually get a chance to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, basically, we do this podcast stuff just so that we can have an excuse to talk to people that we don't otherwise get to talk to except on the internet. So, hello. <laughs> yeah, hello. That works. It works. The excuse is a good excuse. We'll, we'll yeah. call it something academic like outreach. That's yeah. What we'll call yes. It. That's right. Or, yes. Or, yeah. Absolutely. Or Very serious. Academic networking. Serious, <laughs> serious stuff. Interdisciplinary kind of. Yes. yes. Interdisciplinary. That's what we're being. Yeah. A good buzzword. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I no, prefer no, no. It's transdisciplinary. Transdisciplinary. Yeah. Oh, there we yeah. go. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, because Very good. it's not just just two nodes talking yeah. to each other. It's everything in between. Yeah. Right? right. So it's all across. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. That's good stuff. And not procrustean in the slightest. No. <laughs> no. No. That could be chopping off any limbs or legs. Yeah. All right. So that's the endless knot and mistake. <laughs> and we will now turn to the substance of both of our discussions. Talk to you later, Allison and Darren. Talk, Talk to you, you guys later. later. Mark and Evan. Bye bye. Bye bye. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Good night. So long. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, no. Welcome. Welcome yep. to Myth Take episode 21. That's right. On Theseus. Theseus. Can you hear me? This is uh, obviously part of our, our part of our special two-parter with uh, Avon and Mark at the Endless Knot podcast. So we are going to do our usual thing and talk about myth and analyze myth. Yeah. And it's Theseus this week. It's Theseus. So. Theseus is awesome. Well, often overlooked. 
I love Theseus. I think Theseus is a fascinating uh, character, a fascinating hero, compelling. It has he has lots of different you know episodes and lots of different adventures and interacts with so many different sources. So um, we chose to pick two dithyrams from Bacchylides. Um, it's not our usual stomping ground, but no, it's a little bit more ones, challenging than some of the. At least I is. found it a little bit more challenging than some of the stuff I did, I'm used to. I did too for for a little bit, yeah. you know. And and when you really look at this source, these dithyrams from about 476 BC are what eventually, according to some scholars, will go on to become the sort of um, plays in Athens. They are dramatic lyric that actually have character. So before, you know, the Oresteia of Aeschylus, which is you know, 456, 458 BC at the city Dionysia, 19 years earlier, this dithram was beginning to take shape. There was no tragic dramatic performance. There was no Athenian theater when these dithrams were, were being composed. And they're different than traditional odes. And that's something you probably picked up when you read them, that they actually have like choruses, like people will talk. So they're sort of proto-dramatic yeah. with character. It's almost, yeah. almost, like, a, like, almost a like a play, but yeah. shorter. Yeah, but shorter yeah. and just like little, little vignettes, right? Even to the point where, well, what did you say about the second one? I don't remember what I said. You said, oh, does it just stop there? And oh, I went, yes. Yeah, and I made you, <laughs> yes. made you look it up. And yeah, it, it yeah. does just stop there. But then, and then yeah. that's entirely maybe the and point. They, and these ones anyway don't follow that familiar formula that we get with the Homeric hymns, no. with the invocation of the muses no, and kind like of that. the nice everything wrapped up with, with a nice little bow at the end. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly not epic in no. nature. So lyric now genre. lyric poetry mm-hmm. would have been performed with musical accompaniment. Yeah, yeah, okay. and this might very well have been too. Yes, right in this tradition because it would go a- along with the Tragoidia, the the city Dionysia, the early cult of Dionysus, with these singing lyric dramatic performances that evolved to include chorus and then evolved to include actors and then. We get the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. So how much can it change? And Well, 19 years is a long time in the ancient world, right? We're looking at, you know, a generation that comes to rise, right? Mm-hmm. And, and within that time, this art form evolves into something much, much mm-hmm. greater. But I love studying it in uh, here in its genesis. Now, Bacchylides wasn't very popular in his own time. At least we don't have a lot of... Quotations about Bacchylides. Mm-hmm. Um, Euripides uh, and I Aristophanes, I think, quote some quote Pindar, who mm-hmm. was a contemporary. Yeah. Um, but Bacchylides doesn't seem to have been very popular until much, much later in the Hellenistic era, when scholars, um, Hellenistic scholars, took an interest in Bacchylides. But he was the nephew of Simonides, mm-hmm. who is another famous, uh, a famous Greek poet, and it runs in the family. Yeah. And um, I was reading that Simonides was involved with the um, uh, festival to Apollo on Chios, mm-hmm. on the island of Chios, and possibly connected with Delos. There's mm-hmm. possible connections there. Right. Um, with ha- with uh, having the choruses perform and, oh, yeah. tra- and training training choruses. So, can see so how this is Bacchylides certainly does come from a family background of yeah. sorts with with uh, with music and 
poetry. And we talk about poets being famous in the ancient world, and I guess it maybe seems a little strange modern day because poets aren't generally aren't generally household names here. But you can think of it as like our modern pop songs, right? Um, where we have household names of you know certain artists who I'm completely blanking out with. Everybody knows Justin Bieber, the Killers oh. of the Ancient World. Oh, you had to go there. I never I listened thinking, to a like, single Rihanna one of his songs. Or something, but yeah. yeah, I don't know a single um, one of his songs. But yeah, but, of course. But that, but that idea, right? So, um, just to convey why and how poets were popular. I, I, I think that um, you know. Also, I think we're seeing that this is a, an art form that w- was beginning to take shape. Right, um, at least in this tradition, right, with the idea that there were different venues, that there were different forms. So we're seeing something dynamic and evolve, something that maybe uh, was a brief flourishing, and then whatever went on to survive in the Athenian context, mm-hmm. right? Um, so in around the Mediterranean, this is part of what you would see during these performances, right? These sort of communal city performances to go and see a dithyram, to listen to the dithyram, listen to mm-hmm. a chorus, right? A hierophant, a, a priest of Dionysus singing with a chorus um, about a particular mythological story, right? A mm-hmm. mythological um, hero, in this case, Theseus, right? It's very Ionian, right? This is something that I, I love about Theseus because it's very, it's very Ionian in Athens, of course, as a Ionian city and is an Attica, the mythological background for this story is very much a unification story, right? So with this, with the portrayal of, with the creation of Theseus, and and the, his, and his myths, everyone talks about him being kind of like Hercules light. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you have the strong Dorian Superman, right? The Heracles character that we all know, and then there's like someone just sort of says, well, he's kind of the Bud Light version of Heracles, right? Theseus, that is, and that doesn't really do him justice. I th- it's he's, he's overshadowed, of course, and eclipsed by Heracles, but Theseus, in his own right, is a hero um, who is of great significance and great power, specifically on the Attic side of things. And we do see him as being um, responsible for uh, sonoikismos, the Greek word that means dwelling together, as a political figure behind the unification of Attica, the region of Attica. And you could say, you know, Heracles is a pan-Athenaic hero. Um, not Athenaic, a pan-Hellenistic hero. And he is, right? He's a hero for all Greeks, right? But it's kind of hard for him to shrug off that sort of cloak. Not as much as not Heracles. As mu- no, no. Uh, that's what I just said. Yeah, Heracles yeah. is. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, yeah. But Theseus sorry, but Theseus, Theseus is not. Theseus is more regional, right? Yes, He's more yes. Attica. But, but also... The, with the isthmus, right? So it's a little bit beyond with the regions and environs around Nemea and and Corinth and um, in in the isthmus area where he's from, right? From where Pythias is, where Pythias is, his I guess that would be stepfather. I don't know. Yeah. It's hard to say really <laughs> yeah. what that is, right? But yeah. but that region, Aethra's dad, right? Like mm-hmm. where Aethra is, um, and and that's. That's Theseus's birth spot, and it's not Athens, right? No. It's not Athens. And Athens, at least in the historical time frame at this point, is a place like we were talking about. It's a bit of a rat's nest. It's kind of like a warren of of complicated family, political the proto, strife. The proto history, yeah, 
is very confusing. It is. It is extremely confusing. And we're not going to delve into the particulars of that, but it might come up in, in as we read through the primary source. But Theseus is, is, is great in this regard because he acts like a knife. He cuts right to the heart of the matter because his quest is really about identity, unification, and creating a sort of stable um, foundation for um, the the sort of royal house of of Athens, some starting point that moves sort of beyond this bloodshed vendetta mumbo jumbo that's in there, right? And t- giving some 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 place to start at least. That's my impression yeah. of it. So Theseus, like Heracles, does some labors, um, and yeah, he does. also goes on a quest. Yeah, um, a big quest. Uh, to Crete to defeat the Minotaur. Yeah. Uh, so those are that's kind of the area that we're going to that well that these two uh, dithrams that we're going to look at today focus on. Uh, yeah, they do. The second one in particular deals yeah. with the with the Minoan side of things, yes. a la King Minos. The great heroes are defined by Chaos. great villains, and so we need we need this we need this great villain right to yes. kind of mirror. So that he right. can get his great clay off. Exactly. Yeah, right? Yeah, we have to have many obstacles to overcome. And one's not enough with any Greek hero, you know, right? Look how many Heracles has, right? Twelve labors. Well, if we're just going to add them up, right, how many, we'll say, labors does Theseus have? Well, Heracles has more than twelve. Yeah, just for right. just for the sake yeah. of argument, because okay. he has all of his side. Yes, the pererga. He, yes. yes, but uh, Theseus is known for six. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and six, that's almost enough. That's <laughs> he's he's just a a regional, uh, but you know regional what? hero, middle it's, manager. You know, you don't want to over <laughs> be an overachiever. It's striking in a way because we all we know at least in the mythological mind that quantity overrides quality, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so that being said, the default is Heracles is better, right? But there's something refreshing about, at least I find, about Theseus's quest. And this is one of the reasons why, again, I'm drawn to him as a compelling heroic character. And they all have a singular uh, purpose. So there's a clarity in his, in his journey that Heracles doesn't seem to have. You know, all those sort of... Um, facile theories about how Heracles's uh, how Heracles's labors are responsible for the northern the southern and the yeah. geographic and then the mythological and the civilizing right? yeah, uh, civil- yeah and then we all try to impose this model on it well with Theseus you don't have to because it's apparent they're all sort of similar yes they're all kind of interrelated so why don't we start then with Dithram 4 which is uh a short one, but a good one. A shorter one, yeah. But uh, but brings up some of these, some it, of these. It does, I think, yes. Yeah. Uh, and and it's called the coming of Theseus, king of Athens, the sacred city, lord of luxurious Ionians. What news of war is this that the trumpet's bronze-belled braying call announces? Is it some enemy war captain overstriding our land's boundaries with his own host at heel? Is it robbers whose ways are evil, overcoming our shepherds' resistance, driving our flocks away? What is it that gnaws at your heart? Tell us, for I think if any man has the strong support of hard-fighting men-at-arms, it is you, O son of Pandion and Creosa, Aegeus. A messenger has come in, completing the long run between here and the Isthmus, 
telling of deeds incredible done by a strong man. He has killed overpowering Sinus, once the greatest in strength of men, being the son of Croinid Lyteus, the earthshaker, that is, Poseidon. Killed, too, the manslaughtering wild boar in the valley of Cremnion, and killed wicked and cruel Skyron. He has abolished the wrestling ring of Kirkion. The pounder has dropped Polypemion's strong hammer from hand. He met with a better man. I fear this news. I do not know what it is that may come to. Who is this hero, then, does he say? Where does he come from? What has he with him? Does he come armed with weapons of war? Has he a great following behind him? Or alone, and with body servants only, goes he as a merchant who travels into alien lands? Strong he must be, and resolute, adventurous too, who has stood the onset of such big men and put them down. Surely the drive of a god is behind him to bring law to the lawless people. It is no easy thing to engage again and again and never be a loser. In the length of time, all things are brought to completion. The man says only two attendants go with him. On his gleaming shoulders, he wears a sword with an ivory hilt, two polished throwing spears in his hands. A well-wrought skin cap of Sparta covers his head and his bright hair. Over his chest, a sea-dyed shirt, and above, a Thessalian cloak of frieze. In his eyes, there shines the flame-light of Lemnos's volcano. Yet, he is said to be a boy, in his first youth, but a boy trained to feel the finesse of war, and a bronze-battering Ares' work. The end of his search is said to be shining Athens. Well done. Well, there it is. I've spoken with authority. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that, well, it was kind of a last minute decision to break the readings up because... Because there are two parts. There yeah. is the chorus, which was myself. Right. And I chorus had to be the king leader. of Athens. I was the chorus and the yeah, leader. Yeah. You just got to be the king of Athens. If, if we would have had a chorus, that particular section would be, of course, the leader would be forward with delivering those lines, but the chorus would be saying them slightly muted. So you'd have a, a unison voice, a, a communal type voice delivering all those lines of report. Whereas the king's line would have been, the lines that I read would have been delivered independently by a single person. So, it, it but it's neat, that sort of um, dramatic lyric, right? And, you know, we read poetry, but we don't break our poetry up into like, well, I think this person's speaking and that person's speaking and so on. But here with these with these odes, at least, we get a taste of it. So I'm glad that we did do that. I think that's Yeah, and part. you really get the taste of how this is a proto-play. Like, it's, yeah. it's almost a play. Yeah. The chorus is saying things very familiar to a chorus in a Greek play. Yeah. It, it feels very much like a chorus in a Greek play where they're providing some information and engaging in conversation, but not, yeah. you know, moving the plot along or really, I mean, not that there's anything really dramatic happening yeah. here, yeah. but they're getting that information for, for the audience about what is going on. Yeah, right. Yeah, you'd, you'd recognize that. Like if you studied, you know, Greek tragedy, for example, you feel like that you're getting into familiar territory at least. And and I, what I really like about this too is one thing that I've noticed is that it does have, of course, has the chorus and the leader. And there's not character per se, but the king of Athens does have dialogue and this is Aegis. But when the... After the chorus speaks in the opening stanza, the king of Athens does reply, but he replies almost in response to a messenger. Mm -hmm. And so the messenger is a standard classical tra tragedian trope, right? But this is a character that has yet to appear, and this is in the Dithyramb. 
Mm-hmm. So we'll move into tragedy later and we'll have all kinds of messengers popping in left, right and center to deliver things that are that are not seen, that are happening yeah. off stage, right? Or at least outside of the context of the play. And you can see where this this idea at least is is being scratched out here, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that Theseus is coming, Theseus is arriving, the messenger is delivered, right? We're in the quickening of a plot. Once the the war horn is sounded, right? Something's on, something is coming, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that 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 idea I find very compelling and it has um, some power behind it, right? At least sort of sets up a number of questions. And I always appreciate the detail that, that is included in these plays that offers us clues as to um, time and context and what else is happening in the play because obviously uh, you don't have special effects no. um, when you're reading it. So we see here right at the beginning. Or I mean, when you're hearing it. Yeah. Yeah, when you're hearing it. When yeah. um, right here at the beginning yeah. where the chorus tells us that there is a like the bronze belled trumpet oh, yeah. has just sounded. Something has happened. Yeah, we need a sound effect for that. Well, we'll work on it. Yeah, we need to put a sound. That'd be great to put a sound effect in. Well, I don't think we could in the middle of reading, but no. I know what you mean. Yeah, you know. So there's that clue there that there the, is the sound effect, yeah. um, and and then they go through the reasons why this why this trumpet might sound. Yeah. Is it an enemy mm-hmm. um, that has come in? Are there robbers, brigands, yeah. um, out and about no doing threats. things or taking our flocks, yeah. right, yeah. Um, out out in the countryside? Um, what is it? Tell us. And uh, and then... Tell us, for I think if any yeah. man has the strong support of hard-fighting men-at-arms, it is you. Because mm-hmm. that is the community speaking to Aegis. And he is the de facto leader of their community. They are loyal to him. He is loyal to them, we could suppose. And they're like, well, what are you going to do about it? What and are our, we going to do about it? And our soldiers at this time are citizens' soldiers. Yeah. So these are, um, you know, if it is somebody coming to, to steal their flocks away, that's their own flocks that yeah. they're taking, right? Yeah, and yeah. so so um, they're going to be ready and be there to support the king. And you notice how in the very first line it says, King of Athens, right? Mm-hmm. So right away, the first line of a play called The Coming of Theseus says the king of Athens, right? It's not about Theseus yet, but already the poet is signaling the connection between these two characters. And they're going to be moving together, right? Well, Theseus doesn't together. even appear in this. Y- yeah. yeah. Um, it, right? So it's just their reaction yeah. to this news that is coming closer. That's right. Of, of Theseus's imminent appearance. His imminent arrival and that tension that's created about the great unknown, Right. And those threats that you spelled out at the beginning, of course, of an enemy war captain um, or um, uh, brigands, robbers, stealing cattle or their flocks, is, is those are known threats, right? But they don't know what shape this is occurring. They've heard the sonic blast of that wolf horn, and they're going to respond, right? And I, I love that kind of mixed metaphor idea, right? Like you were talking about, you hear the words, you can imagine in your head that sort of mental epiphany of that blast of that horn. Mm-hmm. We all know what a trumpet blast sounds like, right? It means something to us and it meant something to the ancient Greeks, but we get connected through that metaphor to this, right? Um, and it's the bronze belled brain. Yeah, oh, yeah. Call. Braying call. Say that six times fast. Wow, that's <laughs> the bronze belled braying call. Yeah, that's that's a bit much, right? But um, um, again, it's an extremely powerful um, 
sonic kind of metaphor. Well, I like what the translator, I know we, we don't usually talk about this, mm-hmm. but I like what the translator has, the words the translator has mm-hmm. chosen there because when you say it, it almost, it has that, that sound, oh, that yeah. resonance that mm-hmm. you get with that, with yeah. that, yeah. you know, like there's that, I won't yeah. try any more sound effects. Yeah. But anyway, it <laughs> sounds, it just sounds like a trumpet. Yeah. Anyway. If yeah. you've ever played a brass instrument. I oh, guess. I get you. Yeah, right. kind of like sure, absolutely. Yeah. It, the, you can the feeling of your lips on. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's a little aside. Yeah, the bees, the resonant bees, that ba ba ba. Yeah, that you know that who's, that's a poetic. Um, um, who's our translator for this? By the uh, way, the, this is Rich, uh, Rich Richmond Lattimore. Okay. Uh, it's from his book on lyric poets, um, and uh, it's it's good. You know, yeah. there are many, uh, many, um, and, and of course, you can't go wrong with Lattimore. Um, so you have you see the messenger that arrives, and you know another thing that I'd like to mention too about this one. I think that gives it a great deal of weight. Is I talked about before, and I can't. Maybe you can remember, but I talked about before in a previous podcast. The idea of we talked about different plots, right? And talked about different archetypes and tropes and so on. And one was the idea of the stranger comes to town mm-hmm. or someone goes on a journey, and that's John Garner, mm-hmm. right? And John Garner. Uh, in 1984, he's dead now. He died in a motorcycle accident. But he came up with this theory, a very popular theory that I happen to like a lot. It's reductionist in a sense, but it says there are really only two types of st- stories. Someone goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. Right? There are two plots in all of literature. Right? That's John Gardner's contribution amongst many things. And this one fits that to a T. Stranger comes to town. Yeah, stranger comes to town. But also... The stranger is on a journey. Right. See how they're fused <laughs> together, right? Yeah. So it depends it's on what two side. Two sides of the same Exactly. Point. It depends on what side of the story you're on. Like if with me, you're you're fascinated by Theseus, so it's the stranger is going on a town, and he is going on a journey because he is a stranger because this is a quest for identification, yes. for identity, right? To find out, to connect to his mortal father. So should we give a little bit of a backstory here? On sure. Theseus? What just like kind of like kind myths, of, myth of Theseus? Yeah. Up to this, yeah. Up, well, I don't up, know. Up it's to this point. So why why does Theseus have to come to Athens? Uh, why does Theseus have to come to Athens? Well, he's been tasked to um, uh, by his mother, Aethra, right, and uh, she has been instructed in, uh, you know, say a while ago. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe how old do you think Theseus would be? Well, Probably he's described like, as in his first youth, years, so yeah, I'd so say like, early teens. Yeah, maybe sixteen, right? So sixteen years earlier, right? Yeah. Young, a younger Aegis told Aethra to when if you give birth to a daughter, actually expose it. If you give birth to a son, uh, raise him and send him to me only if it's a boy. And. And he can lift the rock right. and get these tokens Which underneath it, underneath. right? So we see the tokens. Right. Um, and I just wanted to mention as well that this yeah. was from a dalliance that yeah. he had on his way home from... Corinth. Yes. And it ties into... Where we where he meets Medea, Yes, right? and if I so had that other <laughs> notebook, I would have been able to tell you all about that. That's but okay. I, I got it. I got it. You got it. it. Okay. I got it. So, um, so he has been to the uh, Oracle at Delphi to find out why he can't have sure. a son or yeah. a 
son preferably, sure. but a child. Yep. He runs into Medea. He's been on, trying. He's been trying. He yeah. runs into Medea on the way home, who hatches her escape plan. Mm-hmm. He continues on his way. He has this dalliance. He goes to the court of Pythias, who has known for his wisdom and his ability to sort of adjudicate the will of the gods, right? But because the oracle is that his son will be will be a I I don't remember the exact wording, but will be like a great leader, the isn't there something specific? Nope. Oh, okay. It, Maybe it, I'm conflating it then. It, but anyway, yeah. um Pythias doesn't really give him the full lowdown on what yeah. on, on on it. Yeah. He 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 just uh, there's a don't it says don't open your wine sack until you've reached home, yeah. right? And so he doesn't really know what that means. But the problem is, and I love the Pythias story. This is another overlooked side of it. And th- is that Pythias, being the smart guy that he is, he's already a unifier. He's brought a couple of cities together. He's very pious. He's known for his smarts. He has this daughter, Aethra, that strangely enough was betrothed to Bellerophon, another yeah. Greek hero, who happens to be gone away and never to return. So here she is, betrothed to Bellerophon, who doesn't come back. And there's the father, Aethra, I mean Pythias, Aethra's dad, saying, when's my daughter's hero husband going to get back? Kind of like an inverted Penelope story, right? But you know the story of Bellerophon, right? He doesn't come back, right? So here's this father with a daughter who is betrothed to a hero who will never return because he's dead, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you do, right? It's like Penelope, what she do right this loyally, wait, 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 wait. No. Pythias is like, uh-uh, that's going to work, not going to work. So he intercedes, and he arranges to get Aegis blasted on wine, right? Sends in his daughter, Aethra, into his bedchamber, right? And we wind up with the child. We wind up with a child. But that's only half of the dual father motif, right? Because... And this, another part that I find fascinating, this is, goes back to that idea about the unification idea. We always kind of put Poseidon and Athena in opposite courts, right? But in this particular instance, they're kind of working together. Because the myth tells us that Aethra was stirred to, she fell asleep, right, afterwards. He fell asleep because he's drunk. But she fell asleep too, but she was stirred by Athena to go to rouse from her bedchamber and go out into the night and to cross the uh, go down to the beach and to go across the causeway to um, a temple to I think his name was like Skiera or Skiera or whatever it's the Pelops is one of the Pelops' charioteer in another tradition Mm -hmm. but it's an Athenian becomes not Athenian ultimately but it's a it's a temple to uh, Athena so Athena says go down and, and offer up a libation like in the middle of the night like right now right and she does that, but it's and I think it's a knowing thing. It's a knowing thing. So Aethra, being the pious woman that she is, she gathers herself up. She goes down to the beach. She walks out of the water, and this causeway that separates, uh, that separates the shore uh, where uh, Aethra is from, Pythias's homeland, Troezen, Troezen, right across from Skiera, whatever. I'm probably butchering the name of that. It's something that's only like waist high at best, right? So you can walk across it. So when she walks across to go to the temple to to give up those sort of libations, she's inca- she encounters Poseidon, and Poseidon impregnates her. Mm-hmm. So you get the other side of it. Mm-hmm. But she's stirred to that meeting by by Athena, yeah. right? So there's I like the way they're kind of like working together. You know, it's like there's a there's some there's a some 
there's some Athena in, in Theseus. Yeah. You know, like not directly because she can't have kids, but there is in a way because look how important he's going to be to Athens, right? So they can't be estranged figures. They need to be kind of like working together somehow, right? Yeah. And maybe, maybe that's like a reconciliation kind of thing because his name, and, and, and you actually brought to mind something else that, that, that I find really funny too is that idea that Theseus's name is etymolog- etymologically linked to token. Mm. to recognition right yes but it also is linked to thesmos which means gathering mm-hmm. right so he's a unifier but his name is about something that is recognized so the things that he recognizes yeah or that are, his um are sandals yeah and a uh, uh, sword yes yes yeah and um under the rock. These have been left under a rock for him. So yeah. he has to be big enough to move the rock. It's so a big there's rock. a test. There's yeah. 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 It's not just like a little a little stone. Yeah. It's like a big rock. So, so he's gotta he's gotta, you know, pass a certain fitness test. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's like circuit he, training. Yeah, yeah. It's like Is he strong enough to, yeah. is to he, be worth it? Right. Because yeah. like a normal mortal, normal fifteen year old mortal couldn't lift this rock. Yeah. Pausanias calls it the altar of Zeus, the rock of Zeus. This is interesting, right? It's a Bronze Age idea. And, and this is something that I had written about before, but the tests of swords and stones, and stones right? <laughs> yes. Right? We get it, right? Yeah. It's a Bronze Age kind of idea. And and it's something that is uh, kind of a transcultural metaphor, right? Yeah. Uh, like a test, right? So we, we see that. And, he, and he, he, he passes the test. He lifts the rock, right? And sees that and, and, and puts them on. And he heads off to it. Athens. Yeah. And instead of doing what would perhaps be the logical and faster thing and just take a boat across the yeah, bay. Yeah, take a boat. He decides to yeah. go by land yeah. on a treacherous route, route. And we've talked before about how travel by land was difficult and yeah. dangerous. Yeah. Um, and this That's is informative. a particularly dangerous route here. Yeah. On his way around to Athens. Yeah, around he, the Bay of Corinth. Yeah. Yeah. He encounters uh, these different dudes. Bad dudes. And animals. Yeah, and, and um, a nasty that, animal you can't have. Yeah. That yeah. he um, these uncivilized beings that sure. he has to or that he chooses to whatever yeah. subdue on his way. Yeah. Um, and we get a little summary. You get of a taste these of that in here, in don't you? Here. Yeah. So chorus leader. You know, you notice too that they intentionally use the word hero. Yes, I did notice that. Who is this hero? Yeah. Then does he say? Yeah, so Sinus um, was nicknamed the Pine Bender. Oh, that guy. And pine two trees. pine trees and so, hey. tie the traveler yeah. to the tips of the pine. Zemia. Also. Um, and and, it, and it's it kind of, yeah. They're not, they're, well, I would say that he is innocent as a young man, but he is not. He old. gives them the they, same treatment. They do, right. So he does to them what they have been doing, sometimes referred to as a sow. Again, um, pigs and boars can be very vicious animals. He says he has abolished the wrestling ring of Kerkion. That's after that. But what's um, Scott? Oh, the yeah. Yes, he is, actually. Yeah. He would make travelers wash my feet. Wash. Washed. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely. <laughs> anyway, um, so Skyron would. Um, has, that's, just what, that's just what this particular yeah, he author to throw said about clips. it. But yeah, yeah, so so and another sort of um, kind of uh, weird 
example of, of uh, Zenia, the guest host protocol. This sort of classification of, of sort of Earth-like giant figures that, you know, you he, as long as he's in contact with the Earth, he's, he's Theseus, I think Pausanias talks about it, or Heracles in his encounter. But they go on to learn this mythological record, right? At least they're purported to, mm-hmm. to be the first to learn, the Athenian would say, right? Or we learned it from Heracles, right? So those are those are part of it, these encounters with these sort of narratives. Son of Hephaestus, is it? Yes, son of, a son of Hephaestus who had an eye. Um, and some versions of the Theseus myth, just just like with the Heracles myth, these the first and then Theseus has this club. Yeah. Much like Heracles with his lion skin in his club. Absolutely. So, um, mentioned here by Bacchylides is Procrustes. And I want to mention Procrustes because it gives us, but we get that great English word Procrustean, which describes an arbitrary yeah. handle yeah. handle the etymology. Uh, but you know but it's a great word. It's a great word. Uh, yeah, it's great. And, and I love them. Although they were mighty and powerful and, and, and villainous or whatever, that Theseus overcame them. Danger coming to town who has this incredible strength. Like, mm-hmm. this is not a huge news. I do not know what it all may come to. Yeah. What, what so there's kind of to? a, so there's tension. There's a big question that they are like Superman, right? Like we often mm-hmm. say that they're, you know, you know that they're uh, actionists. Who is this hero then, right? Right. Who is Where, does, Where he does he come from? And does he bring himself or is he going to come with an army? What, what are we, we preparing want, for? What are we preparing it for? What, it's almost like it'd be kind of neat to know the chorus is saying, if it was an army, then we'd know where... The onset of such big men and put, and put, put them, them down. down. And then yeah. surely the drive of a god is behind him. Like oh, So yeah. they know this isn't... Yeah. Um, this isn't a No, absolutely. Um, and then we come, as you pointed out, to the theme of all of these. Mm-hmm. To br- Metaphorically, when he arrives, he will represent law, right? He's coming, mm-hmm. right? And that I like when they do say that surely the drive of a god is behind him. This is the idea of the, the theodicy, right? That mm-hmm. a god equals success. That he is successful because he is divinely inspired, right? And that he has some sort of um, arrangement with justice, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, things would happen like it suggests at the end, right? Where it says, again and again... And never be a loser. It's no easy thing to engage again and again and never be a loser. That was what the chorus is saying. They're like, continuous success? I don't know how many. What? what we got six instead of nine? It's like, Five, he yeah. defeated this guy. He defeated this guy. He defeated this guy. He killed this thing. He defeated this guy. And then they're getting it, right? And they're like, continuous success? That's atypical. That's not right. There's a God involved, right? And we're in for something, right? Mm-hmm. It says, and, and then, right, at the never be a loser. In the length of time, all things are brought to completion, even failure. Mm-hmm. There we go, right? So I just, I like the way that that section ends, right? It's talking about that it's not going to be an easy thing, or it was not an easy thing, again and again, and never be a loser. They're talking about his sort of great success. And you don't often find the measure of a, of a hero, right, or a man in the Greek tragedy, in the Greek tragic experience, until someone is dead, right? You know mm-hmm. that classic thing, right? Yeah. Do not measure a man and happy or happy or, or unhappy until they are dead. And but here the guy hasn't even arrived yet. The hero hasn't even come to town yet. And they're already talking about him being a successful force, at least engaging with these these um, criminal elements that live out in the 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 outskirts, right, in the periphery of, of civilization. Well, <laughs> from Troy's into Athens, I guess, right, along the Bay of Corinth. And that last line where it says. In the length of time, 
all things are brought to completion. And, and I, I liked, I added the idea that it's even failure, right? And, and, and I, when I saw that, I kept thinking about that phrase, you know, for, for everything there is a time, right? And that's Ecclesiastes 3, right? It's also a song. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> now I've got that yeah. in my head. And, and, and we will add a link to it. Okay, right? I like in, that. In, in the, because uh, it's about the timeless quality, right? Yeah. And even even the, even Ecclesiastes means gathering, which is another meaning for uh, thesmos, which is Greek for Theseus. So it's a gathering of people, right? So Ecclesiasta. Neat, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So then we conclude this poem, or Bacchylides concludes this, this dithrum, with a description of Theseus. Yeah, exactly. Of what cool. he looks like, he wears a sword with an ivory hilt. Yeah, we get the we get the mental epiphany, yeah. right? We're getting the mental epiphany. So, two only... polished throwing spears mm-hmm. in his hands, a well wrought skin cap of Sparta. Oh, there's your Sparta. Covers his head and his bright hair. Mm-hmm. Over his chest, a sea dyed shirt, and above, a Thessalian cloak. Yeah, cool. In his eyes, there shines the flame light of a Lemnos volcano. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't appear mm-hmm. to necessarily be a hundred percent mortal. <laughs> no, no, he's definitely prestigious and powerful. Um, and, and presumably, his sword with the ivory hilt is the one that he is bringing from underneath the rock. Yes, it's the erection. Yes, it's the sword. It's an heirloom from Kekrops. And it is, the ivory hilt is described as containing the erected serpents. So he, he sees it's a, um, a powerful sort of symbol to his lineage. Yes. It's not only dad's sword, but it belongs to dad and dad's dad and dad's dad. And that so is how he's going to be recognized when he gets to When Athens. he gets there, yeah. It's the recognition token, right? Yeah. This is a, something that is in many myths and in yeah. many different you know, um, um, heroic narratives. Yeah. Absolutely. So it is prestigious. I like when they talk about the the finery that he wears and the fact that he says he's accompanied by two attendants. It's kind of like tongue in cheek because you think it's sort of like, well, he's got a couple of guys with him. No, no, they're just like weapons, right? He has a sword and he has a couple of spears with him. So this is an armed Theseus, right? You know, he doesn't talk about his club too. I wish I would have mentioned that club, but he does have the cap of Sparta, um, a, a traveler's cap. You know, if mm-hmm. you are walking, yeah. you usually wear a hat. Um, that covers his head and his bright hair. And he does have dyed clothing. He does wear a cloak. This is important. Um, I'm not sure and why not it would sure. be Thessalian, because well, that's I've, even more to the north, but why not? Well, I was wondering here with the sea dyed shirt, yeah. kind of what that's referring to. Mm-hmm. And uh, my. Up little mollusks? Well, exactly. Is that's, that what you're thinking about? That's what, that's what I'm thinking here. Mm-hmm. Sea dyed. Um, this. Uh, indigo yeah that's cool. um that of course yeah. later you know in roman times becomes incredibly um aso- uh, tightly associated with the aristocrats but yeah, the yeah. ancient dye in or purple dye in the ancient world was made from um these little sea mollusks and th- this tiny little gland like you have to it takes a lot <laughs> of sea mollusks sure. to make something purple so yeah, kind of that sea dyed that 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 allusion to yeah. kind of blue purple Royalty. is what yeah. i'm reading there anyway it's awesome yeah 
I don't have the original Greek in front of me to yeah. look at, but that's how I interpret that. It, it is, those are very prestigious items, right? And yeah. he's sort of decked out and arraigned as somebody of purpose, right? In circumstance. Yeah. He's already <laughs> dressed like a hero. Totally. Yeah. 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 You know, your, your accoutrement, right? That thing that you wear is, is important. It does, it is a badge, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, at a distance, you can figure somebody out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may, you may be a subterfuge, but especially in a, in, a, in, a, in a world or in a society where you really only know a handful of people, uh, and there are those people that are around you in your community, in your small little village, let's say, um, you know, the power of recognition is a, is a big thing. And how do you communicate what it is that you are to people outside of your community, especially if you're a traveler like Theseus? Mm-hmm. So you need sort of visual cues that sort of place you into a uh, recognizable framework, right? You know, like they talked about how uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon warlords were like psycho- psychopathic peacocks, you know, that look like, you know, these guys are like brilliantly decked out, right, and all this gorgeous-looking finery, right? But they kill you just as soon as look at you, right? Yeah. This is sort of the same idea. you got to be very careful around these types of heroes. I like the idea, too, that talks about the ferocity of his eyes. It says, in his eyes there shines the flame light. Mm-hmm. of a Lemnos volcano. He's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He's yeah. ready to get to work. Well, it's... The, it's <laughs> but it's also... Uh, it's a ferocity. Yeah. Like, the Lemnian volcano is a volcanic island. That's Hephaestus's island, right? Yeah. So, again, well, hey, yeah. that's... I never thought about the tie-in with Hephaestus to Athens, but he's there. But anyways, yeah. and he did kill a son of his. So, But at any rate, here we are. right? And, I, and I, I've just been recently reading some contemporary poetry about the Homeric cycle and about the Iliad by um, a contemporary American poet named Chris Loeb. And one of the things that he talks about in it is his, um, talks about eyes often, right? And when I saw that idea that his eyes shine like flame light, like a flame light from a volcano, I thought of his description of Achilles' eyes. Mm-hmm. And it, he says, like, furnace doors ajar. Mm-hmm. Is something that Chris Logue uses. His owl-like eyes of Achilles, like the furnace doors ajar, peering out from behind his helmet. And this sort of idea that there's like a, a kind of ferocity uh, going with the glance, right? You don't want to lock vision with a hero, um, or you're really going to get in, into it, at least at this particular point. But yet a but boy, right? he's a boy. He is a boy. He is a boy trained to feel the finesse of war, and that. bronze battering Ares his war. Yeah. So he's... Isn't Young, that, but he's, but he knows what he's doing. He's trained and he's yeah. primed and he's ready to go. Yeah, I, I, I like that. He does have to, it, it is, there is training involved, right? But the training is really, maybe not so much how to fight, but it says to feel the finesse or the art of yeah. war, right? So he's attuned to it. And I, I like that idea that, you know, the demigod heroes just sort of are, are, are martial. They know how to do things just because... They have that sort of divine spark in them, right? Yeah. A bronze battering Ares work. There's more Ares, yep. right? The work of Ares. Uh, the end of this search is said to be shining Athens. I like, I like that. It's said to be. The messengers report. We don't know. Said to be. Here you are on we the We think other, he's coming to we town. We think he's coming to town. Here you are on the other side of it, you know? Mm-hmm. And we're, we know where he's going because we know the story. But in the midst of this report, if you're living in the moment and giving yourself that suspension of disbelief then you're like okay he could be coming he could be going to some other community right and it's that unknown that great unknown that really gives it a lot of power here 
Is he coming? He is, I hope. Okay, so our uh, next part, I guess, that we want to look at then is what happens when Theseus finally comes to town. Well, there's a whole lot that happens before he comes to town. Well, we're going to town. Fa- there's a whole pile of things. We're going to fast forward a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we have to jump way forward to the, the the moment. Well, you know what? It's not really the moment, and and we're I'm really I have to apologize in a sense because we're going to kind of let you down because Theseus is known for killing the known? Minotaur. Right, and in this episode, guess what? Spoiler alert: He doesn't kill the Minotaur. Right, but that's something that everybody knows. So the second dithram that we do have is about a scene between Minos of Crete, King Minos of Crete, and Theseus of Athens at this point, having connected with Daddy Aegis back home and worked things out. Theseus decides to do the hero thing, right? So, yes. So Minos had... Oh, it's so long and complicated. How far back do we go? We don't need, My, we don't need to talk well, about it. We, well, just say... Minos was punishing the Athenians yes. by having them ship yeah. uh, seven youth, male youths and seven young maidens yeah. to feed his Minotaur son, right. who was entrapped in a labyrinth, which Theseus is going to later enter thanks to... Um, a ball of yarn. Right. A clue. <laughs> Tribute. Um, yes. And uh, so Theseus has rigged up somehow in some way that he is part of this tribute that is sailing to Crete. Yeah, he goes along with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of going to play midst. right into the Minotaur's yeah. hands and then and I find it interesting the that, Yeah, somehow. I find it interesting that they didn't notice because it's seven and seven, supposed to be 14. He's the 15th member, right? But they didn't seem to care. Oh, I always understood it that he replaced one of the others. Well, we'll so see exactly what 14. it is. We'll see exactly well, what okay, it is. Let's, but the fact that, yeah. that he sneaks on board and doesn't immediately identify himself till they're already approaching Crete, yeah. right? They're already out at sea till it gets to that point. And, and, well, we'll see what happens, right? It's called Theseus and the Ring. A dark, proud ship carrying battle-brave Theseus and twice seven glorious Ionian young men and maidens was cutting the open sea off Crete, for into her sails, far white gleaming, blew the northerly winds by grace of renowned Athena, she of the battle Aegis. But the dangerous gifts of the Cyprian goddess, who wears the veil of desire, stung in the heart of Minos, and he could not keep his hand from the girl longer, but laid it upon her cheek, and she, Iroboy, screamed for the bronze-armored Pandanoid Theseus, who gave him a black and rolling eye from under brows, and in him the pain of rage clawed the heart, and he spoke. O son of lordliest Zeus, here is no proper spirit now that you steer in the inward heart. Hero, control that grasping violence, that which powerful destiny from the gods has knotted our way, and as the scale beam of justice dips, such will be the provided course that we shall fill out whenever it comes. You keep that heavy design in control. Even if you are son, born to the bed of Zeus under the brow of Mount Ida, from the handsomely named daughter of Phoenix, so among mortals most high, yet I also myself come from the daughter of wealthy Pythias, when she lay with the lord of the sea Poseidon, and the violet-wreathed daughters of Nereus gave her a veil of gold. 
Therefore, O war captain of the, of the Knossians, I tell you, hold in check your lust, much it hurt can do, for I would not consent to look on the glorious light of ambrosial dawn, were you to force any of these youths or maidens unwilling. Sooner we shall show down the strength of our hands, and what comes of it the gods will decide. So much spoke the spear-brave hero, and the seafarer stood dumbstruck at the overtowering audacity of the man, and Helios's son-in-law was angered at heart and began the weaving of a stratagem that would surprise, and he spoke. Zeus, huge of strength, father, hear me. If Phoenix's daughter, your white-armed bride, bore me your son, now grant me out of the sky a rapid fire-haired thunderflash, a sign conspicuous. And you also, if Aethra of Troyzen truly bore you son to Poseidon, the, the earth shaker, here is this golden finger ornament. My ring, fetch it me out of the deep of the sea. Be bold, dive in, down to your father's house. So shall you know if the Cronian lord of the thunderstroke, master of all, hears my prayers. So that's the first half of the Dithram. And we have two big heroes meeting each other, which is really interesting that he has uh, Minos on the ship um, and not back in Crete awaiting them. So we see this clash of a clash of two heroes. Yeah, Minos really, is a real take charge kind of guy. Yeah. yeah on the deck of the ship. Yeah. He's going to under, he's going to, he's like taking charge, right? He, he's going to make sure that, you know, the tribute from Athens comes, right? Yeah. Adding his, his so, um, and Minos is a uh, son-in-law of Helios, and he is a son of Zeus. Yep. And demigod of his own right. Yep. And Hero. Theseus, of course, being a son of Poseidon. Mm -hmm. um, so they're cousins, mm -hmm. I guess you could sure. say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Theseus and the fourteen young men and maidens mm -hmm. are speeding their way to Crete, and. Minos sees one of the maidens that he rather fancies. He does, yeah. And, and makes a move on her. Makes a move on her. Well, and Theseus yeah. says, no way. Yeah, don't Not do it. Not on my ship. Yeah, and I find that as a, a, good, a good example of the true meaning of hubris. Uh, not the arrogant pride that is so often confused and conflated with Shakespearean tragedy, but the idea that of an assault or mm. an assumption of a physical contact or uh, something that you shouldn't do. You cross a boundary. And and because of his station, uh, Minos does not consider this, right? And he, he approaches this young girl. He uh, makes advances on her. And had Theseus not been there, then it would have went where it was going. Yeah. There's no question in Minos' mind that he can go ahead and do what he wants to yeah, do. Yeah, he can do what he likes. Yeah. Um, and, and I love this image. Theseus gives him a black and rolling eye from yeah. under the brows. Like he just there gives it him is a again, good punch right, that, right in the Yeah, right that the Homeric face. glance. Right? Yeah. That's the, it, it, Agamemnon's described that yeah. way in the Iliad. Right? Yeah. So are many of the heroes. They have this, this uh, not only that firelight that I described, yeah. but also that the eyebrows, right? The yeah. eyes are described. Just yeah, the glare. Right? Yeah, and and but it is also in in him uh, the pain of rage, mm -hmm. right? So that bottle lightning idea, right? He sees hubris. He sees a crime about to occur, right? Crema, I guess, mm -hmm. right? And he is going to take action, right? Well, yeah. It sounds like a kind of a 
good code of conduct, almost like chivalry in a way. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if they're not excluded from doing good things, at least by our register, right? But it, it doesn't really always define who they are. I said like things before, like they could be innocent but not virtuous or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, in this case, we're like right on. We're cheering for Theseus a little bit, right? At least from our, well, like they say, what our moral register, right? Yeah, and he says, um, even, even if you are... Zeus, as you claim to be, mm-hmm. I am the son of Poseidon, right. and you better listen to me. Yeah, oh, son of Lord, Lordius Zeus, he kind of knows, right? Yeah. There's no proper spirit. Now, you notice he calls him a hero as well. He says, hero, control yeah. your grasping violence, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't call him king, doesn't ne- mention him as, as Minos. He uses that term specifically, right? Mm-hmm. Takes one to know one, mm-hmm. right? That which powerful destiny from the gods has nodded our way, our collective, you and me, Minos, like you, right? You have been give, granted gifts from your father. I have been granted gifts by my father. I acknowledge you as a hero. You will acknowledge me. This is sort of the subtext to paraphrase, right? That which the powerful destiny of the gods has nodded our way, and as the scale beam of justice dips, such will be the provided course that we shall fill out whenever it comes, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes... Right? It'll come. <laughs> right? Yeah. It'll be there, right? This idea of fate. Yeah, fate. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he says, even if you are who you claim, you know, yeah. Zeus, uh, sorry, son of Zeus, son as, of Zeus. As, as you claim, yeah. I am. And this is where he where he makes himself clear to, to yeah. Minos. Mm-hmm, I yes. am the, the uh, of grandson of Pythias, mm-hmm. son of Poseidon. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You better listen to me. <laughs> yeah, you, you, it says where you keep your heavy design in control. Yeah. Right? You know that control, right? That's that's your area. That's the homophrosine idea, yeah. isn't it? Right? Sort of that moderate, immoderate, moderate. You know, what's going on here, right? This is so Athenian, ain't it? Like, God, mm-hmm. it's just like, it's just dripping with it. But, you know, there's, there's Minos, right? Bang. It's like, you better get yourself under control. What's the what's this phrase? Check yourself before you wreck yourself? Yeah. One of those kind of things, right? Yeah. Um, so... Um, we have to make sure that, you know, identity is established. Right? Mm-hmm. And you know what? One thing I, that I thought was kind of neat there, you notice how it mentions that Poseidon gave Aethra a gift, a veil of gold. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always given gifts, isn't he? Yeah. You know, like we always talk about how violent, whatever, he abducts, he abducts Tantalus' son and so on. But then what's he do to make up for it? He gives him the immortal horses yeah. and the golden chariot. Now here Aethra's like, oh, sorry about that. Here's a golden veil, you know, whatever, right? So that's a pretty good tradition anyway. That's just a minor point, but Poseidon gives gifts. And and Theseus says, I would not consent to look on the light of dawn. Mm -hmm. Like he would risk his life if he has to, to keep Minos from doing what he's doing. doing. And this is really where we see, and, and I think Theseus in some ways is closest to that modern idea we have of a, of a hero of somebody doing mm-hmm. doing good and that's kind of what we see here yeah um and uh, it's true i like i like that that there is that there's something that we can connect to and it says so much spoke the spear brave hero spear brave well <laughs> and know, just like, what? and yeah. just just before that yeah. though he says sooner we shall show down the strength of our hands and yes. what comes of it the gods will decide alludes ah. to this contest yes. that is going to happen when theseus uh kills kills the minotaur yeah. and escapes yeah absolutely and it's it's an agon, right? There always are contests. This is Homeric. This is this is the part of myth, right? There are always going to be people 
coming into conflict and contests with each other. And this is a sort of a, a whip out your ID and show me your your who's your god card, right? Yeah. That type of thing, right? And and it, and it does and it does work, and it's a very a very endearing type of uh, of, of episode. And I, I like it a lot. So then Minos the calls, ring, right? Yeah, yeah, Minos Minos calls a contest. Yeah. And he says, Golden finger ornament. Um, I'm going to ask for a sign from Zeus. Yeah. He's going to give me a sign of lightning because he's my dad. If that's and what, if yeah. Poseidon is really your dad, yeah. you're going to dive down into the ocean and right. bring back my ring. Right. And that's where we stop reading. Yeah, and that's where we stop so. reading, yeah, because he's going to produce this token, right? And Zeus, great of strength, listened to the prayers without fault and planted a high portent, wishing to make his son's place of honor clear in all eyes, and he flashed lightning. Minos, seeing the welcome portent, lifted his arms into the resounding sky, he, battle-brave hero, and spoke, Theseus, here are my gifts from Zeus, plain for your eyes to see. Dive then into the deep humming sea, and the son of Cronos, your father, the Lord Poseidon, will give you the highest glory over all the earth well grown with trees. He spoke, and the heart in the other did not twist away. Standing high on the well-planked deck, he sprang, and friendly the sea forest gathered him down. Zeus's son Minos, in inward amazement of heart, gave order to hold the elaborate ship down, wind and away. But destiny pushed on another course. And the fast-faring hull went, and the north wind blew from astern and scuttered her on. And all the groups of the youth from Athens trembled now that their hero had taken the sea plunge. From their soft eyes they shed tears and looked for a hard pass and heavy to be brought to. But the sea people, the dolphins, nimbly carried tall Theseus to the house of his horseman father. He came into the god's palace. There, looking about him in fear, he saw the fabulous daughters of rich Nereus, and from their glorious bodies the light glanced shimmering as a flame, and on their locks were circled gold-implicated ribbons as they refreshed their hearts with dancing, lithe-footed. He looked on the stately true wife of his father in that alluring house, Amphitrite the ox-eyed, who cast about him a robe purple with sea dye, and laid upon the curls of his hair the wreath unflawed that once at her own marriage beguiling Aphrodite rose-crowned had given her. For men of close counsel nothing the gods accomplish passes belief. Beside the slim stern of the ship he came up, and ah, in what thoughts he bewildered the lord of the armies of Knossos, now coming out dry from the sea, a wonder to all, and over his body gleamed the gift of the gods, and the bright-throned nymphs in newfound hilarity raised the high scream of triumph. And the sea echoed, the youths shot about him, sang with voice of love and acclaim, Delian, Lord, your own heart softened by the quarrels of the Chians, grant a Godspeed happening of success. And that brings us to the end of the Dithram. Absolutely. Wow, there's a bit going on in that, isn't there? Yeah. We just should have had a part two. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. That is part two. Well, anyways, it's all good. So this is the, the part that shows the verification Right, of each yes. of their identity. So first, Zeus sends the requested lightning bolt. He does. And 
Minos rejoices because here's his uh, here's his proof. Yep, absolutely. He gets what he asked for. And one of the interesting things that sort of came up when we were doing our research about Apollo and the popularity behind certain Olympian gods is that their capacity, at least in myth, to listen to the appeals of their followers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Chryseis and Chryses. Chryseis, uh, when Chryses praise to Apollo, he listens, causes plague, and then we're game on in the Iliad. And in this particular case, it's the same sort of thing. It doesn't happen to be a priest, but it happens to be a powerful hero. And they can invoke or call upon their father, right, for assistance. They don't do it often, but in this case, Zeus is happy to oblige. Gives him the nod, and crack, the thunderbolt rings out from the heavens, right? So he said, that that's me. Now what are you going to do? And then he sets up this agon, and throws his ring into the sea. Then Theseus very quickly is takes to the to the to the task, right? He did not twist away, standing on the high plank deck. He sprang and friendly, the sea forest gathered him down. I like that imagery. Yeah. The long kelp beds, right? You can sort of picture this yeah. image of a man moving down into into the Aegean Sea. Right. And, this, and Minos was amazed. He didn't oh, totally. expect it. Yeah. He didn't expect it. And no. he um initially gives orders to hold the ship down. You notice how they have that, that they qualify that amazement? What's the word they use? Because, Inward amazement. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't go, oh, and like that, right? He's just like, see, he's like, he's like, he keeps it to himself, right? He has a certain yeah. decorum. He's amazed. Yeah, and so he he wants to hold hold the ship downwind and, mm-hmm. and wait and kind of see what's going to happen. Right, that would make um, sense. But destiny. Yeah, pushed it to another course. Yeah, so they keep going. So it makes yeah. it it makes what happens that much more miraculous because it's not even that he's coming up in the same spot, right? Up spot. Like he's so coming up in a completely going. different place and it, he's still beside the ship. Yeah, it also <laughs> explains the inconvenient truth of the fact that he does not find the ring, right? He just comes back up with a rather interesting cloak and yeah, <laughs> I you know what? I didn't even notice that when I read it. Yeah. I was <laughs> I he didn't even focus on the ring aspect. Of no, the he ring doesn't recover of, it. He's into a, a, a whole fantastic journey, but it doesn't. He but he doesn't comes recover. back with something even better. It, absolutely, yeah. He comes back with something completely different. Yeah. Um, In the house of his horseman father, that's supposed to be Poseidon, and it is because yeah. Poseidon is not only shaker of earth, but a very powerful god when it comes to talking about uh, horses being connected to horses. Well, and and I like the description, the sea people, the dolphins. Yeah, like, the awesome. dolphins are described as sea people. I think that's just yeah, fantastic. And, and there's myriads down there, and mermaids and of course, and I don't think I don't think we've done that yet with Apollo, but Apollo's connected with uh, with dolphins. Oh. Or yeah, we will in part yeah. two because we haven't got to that yeah. part of the hymn yet. So I just realized the minute I Apollo opened my mouth Delfinos. that we didn't. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but it's cool. Yeah, there. Um, it, it describes a whole sort of um, aquanautic world, right? Yeah. Sort of a, a submarine landscape of 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 uh, mystery, right? And, and filled with exotic uh, creatures. And in and populated by divine and semi-divine beings, and this is a fascination that I find even um, will uh, occur today, because you know we're about to um, see uh, the story of Aquaman and the Justice League, and the story of Arthur Curry and Mira, his wife, and you're going to see this world portrayed. Uh, well, on and the even large in, screen in and, modern cinema, and even in science, like there's a lot that. 
because oh, the ocean's so unknown. deep and dark. Yeah. There is, yeah. I have heard it said, and I do not know how accurate this what is, but that? That, that we know less about the ocean than we do about the stars. Absolutely. And, and that more people have visited the moon than have visited the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, because it's so it's so deep and dark. Yes. And uh, I've been noticing on Twitter lately that there has been some kind of deep sea oceanic um, device that has been sending back these these pictures that I see people right. circulating on Twitter of How these fascinating critters. Yeah. Truly the undiscovered country, right? Yes. Well, well, let's say, yeah, the final frontier. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's go with the Star Trek. So I love how the... Yeah. How the Greeks have populated it with yeah. like, these these Goes dolphin there people, and, and we've got the god's mean? palace, yeah. and Nereus and his daughters, mm-hmm. and um, Amphitrite. Yep, and they're dancing, and they've got golden ribbons in their hair. That's and, Poseidon's wife. Yep. And what does she give him? She gives him a purple robe with sea dye. There it is again. again. <laughs> There's your connection. Draw a circle. Roll back to Dithyram One, right? And he's wearing a, a sea dyed. He's wearing a sea dyed jacket or a sea dyed shirt in that one, right? And, and he has this robe, right? And not just the robe, mm-hmm. but lays upon his yes. curls the wreath. Yeah, wreath. The wreath that had been given to her yeah. when she married. Uh, when she married. Poseidon. Right. Um, so no ring, but mm. something far better. Really, really, this is far. Sure. This is far better. Um, and as he emerges onto the deck of the ship, he is dry as he's a bone. dry as a bone. Right. So it's yeah. the miraculous. It says a wonder, thumazo in Greek, a wonder to all. Right. Um, and over his body gleam the gifts of the gods. Right. Of course, this brilliant um, robe and this wreath and the bright throne nymphs. A newfound hilarity. There's a great word, right? <laughs> They're happy about it. They raised a high scream of triumph. You can imagine these little heads sort of popping up around the boat, sort of like shouting, you know, the way uh, dolphins kind of uh, giggle and yeah. laugh, right? Yeah. Uh, to uh, this is something squeak. they squeak and giggle, yeah. yeah. So they're they're yeah. they're um, would be equated with that idea. And this is this is interesting. Um, too like you were pointing out just before um just in in the pause there yeah that minos is giving theseus advice yeah on he did how to be a hero well yeah sort just of before that yeah he told him to be bold and to dive down and go into your father's house yeah, yeah. and so and then here he 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 does he goes through this underwater yeah. trial sure and yeah, then like emerges that. from yeah. it and yeah. is ready to go on to his yeah. next uh yeah, it's, it's very it's very um, uh, Campbellian, right? Mm-hmm. It's the it's the going into the unknown. Yeah, right? and in fact, here when we talk about heroes and villains being two sides of the same coin, in this case, the hero Minos happens to be the what they call a threshold guardian that's responsible in many ways for claiming his identity as a hero. So mm-hmm. his heroic identity is affirmed, confirmed by by Minos. He's beholden to him to that. Just yeah. as a good hero is qualified by a good villain, vice versa, right? Um, and you, you kind of see that here. This is a good test. And we can, we'll have to do an episode on Minos sometime because there's so many nuances and yeah, he's complicated. There, whether guy. or not he's a good guy or a bad guy, because he yeah, he's plays not my both favorite, sides of the both yeah, sides not my favorite. Point. You notice, you notice that they do use the word Knossian in there, isn't that mm-hmm. great? Mm-hmm. You know, Knossos. Yeah, well, like, and that's and it's old Crete's got power. Right? Yeah, like old old Crete, old Knossos, old Minos. 
Well, and the idea of the labyrinth um, comes, mm-hmm. scholars believe, from seeing the ruins of places like Knossos, sure. of, of the Greeks seeing those places. The, complicated. Uh, yeah. yeah, the Minoans predate the yeah. Greeks. And so they saw these, um, these floor panels of these palaces, and um, I don't know how, in, in what state they were in when they well, saw probably them. Probably but, in a good state of disrepair, I imagine. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Subject to earthquakes and warfare, God knows. But we'll we'll put a pic- we'll find a picture for the blog because mm-hmm. when you look at the floor plans, they're, they're these long storerooms yeah. and they look like a labyrinth and they look like a maze. And so yeah. you can see how this story arises. That, well, that's one aspect that of it. There was. So that's one theory yeah. anyway. Yeah. And... Um, and that's where we get this this labyrinth um, association. The, yeah, you get the labrys as well from the double-headed axe, yes, right? Yes, And And the idea of, of the sort of the moon and the sun, yeah. right? And the, the other idea is that the double-headed axe is a very practical, not only a ritual weapon, but, a, well, a ritual device, right? I don't know about a weapon, but a practical tool. And in the case of uh, Thalassocracy, like the seafaring Knossian Empire, you're going to cut down a lot of wood to make all those ships. So the axe takes on a cultural metaphor beyond just the, you know, the weapon or the ritual itself. It's, it's practical. You've got to cut a lot of wood. And when yeah. one side becomes dull, you flip it over and you keep cutting, right? You need to build ships. Mm-hmm. So um, that is something that is, informs the labrys, right, yeah. in, its ritual, in its ritual context. And it's the nasty place where we put the hybrid monster in the Minotaur, right? Yeah, and the the Minoans are really fascinating. The Minoans and then the, the Mycenaeans, because yeah. these are the pre... Um, yeah, this is old. Like, old we don't have literature from no. from them. And uh, or not what? or not literature that we can decipher anyway. Yeah, we're not really into that. <laughs> so, so, so it's it's it always fascinates me how these how the ancient Greeks perceived. interpreted and perceived these earlier. There were kind yes. of vestiges of these earlier things yeah. that happened, and I mean we we see that all the time in Homer. Yeah. These vestiges of earlier things that kind of work their way into the mythology and the stories. Um, yeah, it's their reception of, yeah. of an older time. Uh, yeah, that, like, that we can't access. Yeah, yeah we can't access. That's why that I went, way. wow, it's cool they said Knossos. Yeah. You know, because yeah. that's what that's getting at. It's yeah. their reception, right? And, and in fact, just as a little bit of a tie-in, when we do get back to Apollo in the next one, in part two, we will see that again. Mm-hmm. The choice of the Cretan sailors yes. does come up. Yes. So the nostalgia of the past, right? Yeah. The old empire idea, those that came before us, you know, where are they now? Right. Will we become like them? Right. Those types of things. Right? And and geographically, Crete holds a certain fascination yeah, as well does. because yeah. it's not quite Greece, no. and it, but it's not yeah. not Greece well, oh, yeah. for them. Like it's just kind of this Good, weird yeah. kind of in between. Mm-hmm. But it's um, and it's associated. It's heroic. Yeah, it's, it's associated right with past. with wealth yeah. and and with power and yeah. might and the whole stories of of Minos. Totally. It, it's um, it, yeah, it's in the heroic complex. Yeah. It's in that that realm of ideas of a, as a geographic geographical space. So we know of course just to kind of wrap up the, the myth of, of Theseus mm-hmm. more generally, we know of course that he does go, he does um, with the help of Ariadne. Ariadne, yep. he borrows her ball of string <laughs> or yarn yep. and uh 
travels into the labyrinth, slays the slays the Minotaur, comes out. Prom- he promises that he would marry her. Yeah. Um, he doesn't live happily. Ever takes happy. it takes her away. They they fly off, mm-hmm. and then he forgets about Abandons her. Abandons her on axles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So long. Yeah. Sucks to be you. He's a forgetful guy. I don't know. We can yeah. talk about that. That's another episode, though. We're not. But gonna, I just wanted to bring his story got just it, to yeah. just to a close Absolutely. there, so we don't leave our audience on mm-hmm. a cliffhanging. Mm-hmm. Cliffhanging. Um, and he returns with tragedy. Yeah. Yes, yes, because he forgets to change the sails, and so his father yeah. jumps off the cliff, thinking the, that his son has died. But that's our Bacchylides for our primary source, yeah. and we've looked at two really, really interesting dithyrambs, mm-hmm. right? Two really sort of interesting, dramatic, lyrical poems, um, and tried to place them in context, tried to discuss their mythological context to the best of our ability, and uh, we, we hope you enjoyed it. Yes. So we should wrap up. We should, because this has been a very long episode. Yes, it is. So with that and in we mind. Thank you, we thank you for, for listening. We always do, yes. Thanks you for listening. You are we welcome it. to join us on Facebook at MythTake. You can check out the blog, MythTake.blog. We now have a Patreon if you would like to support us um Maybe someday we can get a chair that doesn't squeak midway through the podcast. That's right. <laughs> um, Patreon.com slash myth take. Um, we appreciate any of, of your support. Um, even just sharing our podcast with other people is a huge help. Absolutely. And we would also like to encourage you to join us on Twitter if you are on Twitter with the hashtag myth take. Um, and also check out the hashtag humanities podcasts. Um, to find out about lots of other humanities podcasts in yeah. our little our little uh, it's a good growing network. network. It's yeah. a fantastic network. A lot of and really it's, interesting um, it's stuff. It's growing every day and getting more and more new and interesting content. And you don't really need to look far to find something to listen to. So if you haven't, please subscribe to Myth Take. We would love to have, have you as a regular listener. And subscribe to The Endless Knot as well. And make sure you listen to their half of Absolutely. our, their part of our episode. And good night. Good night. listening to Myth Take, a fresh take on ancient myth. This episode of Myth Take has been brought to you by our generous patrons, Avon McMaster and Mark Sunderham, Joel Barfoot, and Erica Dilworth. Like what you hear? Support us on patreon.com slash mythtake. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep our show going and growing. Able to give a little bit more? For $5 a month, you'll receive an original lino print by yours truly. Hang this print of a gorgon's head on your office wall to ward off evil and impress your friends. This is an original design based on archaic Greek apotropaic images. And if you're really keen, for $10 a month, you can also request a show on a topic or theme of your choice. Not able to donate? That's okay. We totally understand. You can still show your support by rating and reviewing us in iTunes. Recommend us to your friends, too. MythTake is a labor of love, and your support helps defray the costs of web hosting and equipment. We thank everyone for your support and encouragement. 
MythTake is created, recorded, and produced by Allison Innes and Darren Sundstrom. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mythtake or on Twitter with hashtag mythtake. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher or find our RSS feed on Podbean. If you enjoy our podcast, please take a moment to rate it and comment on iTunes. Let others know it's worth a listen. For more information about the show, including show notes and music credits, or to get in touch, visit our website at mythtake.blog. And if you're really keen, for $10 a month, you can also request a show that involves my cat walking across my keyboard while I'm trying to record.